Advent, as I mentioned last week, is a season that prepares us for the twin arrivals, comings of Christ. We prepare for his first coming to commemorate, celebrate it at Christmas when he was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. We prepare our hearts and souls for his second coming when he will come at the end of the age, judge the living and the dead, usher in the fullness of his kingdom. But neither his first nor his second coming make a whole lot of sense if we don't know why he is coming. He's coming because things are wrong. Something is not right with the world, and he comes to set it aright. You know, throughout history, people of all different cultures have recognized that the world is not what it's supposed to be. Philosophers of all different kinds of stripes have put forward explanations for why this world, uh, there seems to be something wrong with this world. There's a story about this that I really like. I've I've told it before, but it's worth repeating. The story goes that the editor from the Times of London wrote a letter, sent it out to the leading literary figures, early 20th century. One of them came to G.K. Chesterton, a Catholic convert. The letter simply asked the writers to give their opinion on what is wrong with the world today. The story goes that Chesterton's reply was by far the shortest. He said, Dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. Now, he was not trying to be funny, nor was he dismissing the question. He was making a point that what is wrong with the world is not something external but internal. What's wrong with the world is not systems or structures. It's not this or that political party. It's not this or that person. What's wrong with the world is within us. It's in our wills, our intellects, our hearts and souls. What's wrong with the world is original sin. That's a bold statement. There are many people today who would vigorously object, who would pound their fists and adamantly say that what's wrong with the world is actually poverty or corruption or violence or systemic racism or the family falling apart or pollution or polarization or we could go on and on. But all of those evils are merely symptoms. They are not the disease The root of all those evils and more is original sin. And original sin is what has afflicted mankind since the fall of our first parents. In original sin, we see the genesis of every evil human beings have ever perpetrated in history. Original sin is the problem of human history. And if we fail to grasp original sin... We will fundamentally misunderstand the human condition and we'll never get why Christ was born of a virgin in Bethlehem and we'll never get why he's coming again on the last day. So let's talk original sin. We see the account of mankind's fall from grace in Genesis chapter 3. Now I mentioned this last week, uh, but it's worth repeating. 
When we read the Bible, we need to pay particular attention to the genre of the book we're reading. Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters of Genesis, it's something like a poet's rendering of history. Sacred author is using poetic language and and, uh, symbolic language to communicate the primordial truth that, for instance, God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. When it comes to Genesis chapter 3, this poetic figurative language, it indicates that mankind at the very beginning of history rebelled against God. And as a consequence, sin, misery, death entered the world. Adam and Eve, our first parents, were born into a very unique situation. Created in the image and likeness of God, yes. They were placed in dominion over creation. They had a a body and a soul. They had bodies like the animals, but they had a rational intellect and a free will. The animals didn't have a rational intellect and were governed by, by instinct rather than free will. But over and above that human nature, God bestowed certain gifts upon Adam and Eve. The first, greatest, the most important gift was sanctifying grace, which enabled Adam and Eve to be the friends of God. There were other gifts, preternatural gifts. I'm not going to get into the weeds with this. There are, it's easy to. There, I'm just going to talk about two other gifts God gave Adam and Eve. Immortality. They would not die. We know this because when they rebelled against God, they did die spiritually and eventually physically. Secondly, the gift of integrity. This means they were free from concupiscence. That sounds complicated. It's not. It means that their appetites, desires, passions were ordered to their reason. We aren't born like that. We have to, over many years, learn and and cultivate virtue so that our passions, appetite, desires are somewhat under our reason. And we know this because in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, we're told that they were naked and unashamed. And the first thing we're told that they realized after they fell from grace was that they were naked and now they were ashamed. And they sought to cover their nakedness. That's Adam and Eve. But Genesis chapter 3 begins by speaking about this serpent, the most cunning of all the animals. The serpent stands for Satan. Satan is in no sense of the word, in, in no sense of the word can we say he's an allegory or a metaphor. Satan is all too real, though I think it's safe to say he would prefer we all think ourselves too sophisticated to believe he exists. Satan is very much real, but in no sense is he God's rival or equal. God is infinitely more powerful. Satan is a creature. A creature who was originally created good. He was an angel. And at the beginning of time, he made an irrevocable choice to reject God and his plan. And he enticed a number of other angels to join in his doomed rebellion. They were cast out of heaven, and these holy angels forever became fallen angels. Nevertheless, Satan is allowed to tempt Adam and Eve. To tempt them to disobey the one commandment God gave our first parents in the Garden of Eden. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Satan tempts because he knows his rebellion is doomed. And he seeks to drag as many souls to hell as he can between now and the end of time by enticing them to join his hopeless cause. So he employs cunning half-truths to persuade Adam and Eve to mislead. He claims that the couple will not die, but rather that their eyes will be opened and they will be like God. I think we all know the story. Adam and Eve fell. But keep this in mind, right? God never permits us to be tempted beyond our strength. That was true of Adam and Eve. That's true of us. The fault does ultimately rely, lie with them. Why did they fall? They fell because they wanted moral autonomy. And we see this in the metaphor of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to determine for themselves what is right and wrong, what is good or evil, what is true or false, something that is the domain of God. And so the punishment they were given makes complete sense in this life. Adam and Eve wanted moral autonomy. God let them taste a degree of autonomy that they hadn't bargained for. They wanted to be left to, for themselves to determine good and evil, so their human nature was left to itself, stripped of all the gifts that inclined it to supernatural good, Stripped of those preternatural gifts which made them impervious or immune to natural evils. Immortality's gone. Integrity's gone. They're now naked and ashamed. And worst of all, they lose that sanctifying grace. They go from being the friends of God to being in a state of enmity, being God's enemy. From that day forward, that would be the light, the plight of all the children of Adam and Eve. We are born in a state of enmity with God. We wanted autonomy, we got autonomy, as well as a problem we can't fix. We are bound and can't set ourselves free. However, Genesis chapter 3 does offer a glimmer of hope in Genesis 3.15, where God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. She will strike at your head while you strike at her heel. This refers to the woman, the, new, the woman refers to the new Eve, the Blessed Virgin Mary, whose son is the shoot that sprouts from the stump of Jesse, Jesus Christ, who will win the definitive victory over Satan and will give us a chance to go from being the enemies of God to being his friends once again. He will come to rescue us. But that's a story for another homily. And if you're wondering why I'm talking about a Bible passage that's nowhere in this reading, I mentioned this last week, Archbishop Nauman asked the priest of the Archdiocese to preach the kerygma this Advent, the basic message of the gospel, which can be summarized in four points. Goodness of creation, sin and its consequences, rescue, uh, God's saving action, and our response to God's saving action. Tonight we get the bad news, sin and its consequences, the bad news that help us to see uh, the good news in its proper context. More than that, though, the bad news, there's a sense in which even the bad news is good news. If you've ever known someone who's had a, a serious medical condition, before they're diagnosed, it's usually preceded by some period of time where they know something is wrong. They can't quite put the finger on it. Their doctor can't quite put his or her finger on it. 
then suddenly they're diagnosed. And even if that diagnosis is scary, at least they know what's wrong. And they can face it. Original sin is that for us. We don't need to wonder. God tells us what's wrong with the world. Original sin. And he tells us that he will come to set us free to rescue us. We'll talk about that next week.